his father, and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence, says the Lord of hosts, to you priests who despise my name? Yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? You offer defiled food on my altar, but say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying, the table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? But now entreat God's favor, that he may be gracious to us. While this is being done by your hands, will he accept you favorably? Says the Lord of hosts. Who is there even among you who would shut the doors so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain? I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. Nor will I accept an offering from your hands. For from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place, incense shall be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it, in that you say, the table of the Lord is defiled, and its fruit, its food is contemptible. You also say, oh, what a weariness, and you sneer at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring the stolen, the lame, and the sick, thus you bring an offering. Should I accept this from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed be the deceiver, who has in his flock a male and takes a vow, but sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. And now, O priests, this commandment is for you. If you will not hear, and if you will not take it to heart, to give glory to my name, says the Lord of hosts, I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have cursed them already, because you do not take it to heart. These are the words of God. Father, would you open our ears and our hearts as we come to this text this morning, teach us from your word. Your word is true. It is sharp. It cuts us to the quick. I pray that we would receive it. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. You are our strength and you are our redeemer. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, as I mentioned last week, we are going to be working through the book of Malachi. Malachi is a prophecy given by the prophet Malachi. Malachi's name means my messenger. Malachi is the last prophet, the last inspired word that we have before a period of 400 years of silence. Kids, if you have a sheet in front of you, you'll see maybe a picture of Malachi. And at the bottom, it says 400 years of silence. This is because Malachi comes and he preaches to the people, particularly to the priests. And again, this is the last word from God before 400 years of silence until the time of Jesus. Throughout their history, Israel many times, the nation of Israel many times despised their covenant with God. And they would do this in one of two different ways. You're probably very familiar with the stories of Israel turning and worshiping idols. We see this over and over again in, in Israel's history, particularly during the time of Judges. Uh, there's a, a series of times when, the, when um, Israel turns away from God's law, from worshiping Yahweh, and instead they worship idols. This happens over and over again in Israel's history. This is one obvious way that the people despise God's covenant with them when they turn away from the God who has brought them out of Egypt and instead worship idols. But other times, as here in the time of Malachi, Israel despised God's covenant in the very way that they kept the rights of the covenant. In the very way that they worshipped Yahweh, they were actually despising him. Their defiled worship of Yahweh, in fact, was just another way of despising him. It really was no better than when Israel turned away and worshipped idols, when they come and worship God with defiled worship. This is one of the main messages of the book of Malachi. And as we saw last week, if you, look, if you have your Bible in front of you, which I would encourage you, especially for this sermon, uh, please have your Bible in front of you because I want you to be able to see these things yourself. But if you look back at the first part of chapter 1, we see this contrast that Malachi brings between Esau and Jacob. And we saw that um, the Lord says that Esau I have hated and Jacob I have loved. 
And one of the things, the distinctions between these two is God's sovereign love over Jacob. He loves Jacob because of his love for him and not because of anything that Jacob deserves in himself. But Esau or his descendants, that is Edom, the nation of Edom, God despises and destroys. But here, uh, and let me make one more comment here. Back in Genesis chapter 25, when you have the story of beginning of Jacob and Esau, one of the things that uh, we see is um, Esau is out hunting and he is, um, comes back from hunting and he's hungry and Jacob is preparing a stew of some kind. And Esau is so hungry that he says, give me that stew. And Jacob uh, barters with him and says, sell me your birthright. Esau was the firstborn, so he ought to receive the inheritance from his father. And Esau is so hungry, he says he's hungry near to death. And so he sells his birthright to Jacob. Um, But the text is very interesting there. It says that he despised his birthright. He was a son of Isaac, a son of Abraham, and yet he despised his birthright. Well, here we have in this passage, we have God talking to his son, Jacob, God talking to the people of Israel who are despising their God. Israel has here become more like Esau, more like Edom than a true Israel. And so in this passage, God begins to bring charges against the priests particularly. Uh, God makes very clear that honor is due to the Lord of hosts because he is the great king over all the earth. You see uh, mentioned three different times in this passage that God's name is to be exalted among the nations. Uh, Look with me at Psalm 47. Psalm 47 verse 2. I'll start in verse 1. Oh, clap your hands, all you peoples. Shout to God with the voice of triumph, triumph, for the Lord Most High is awesome, or to be feared. He is a great king over all the earth. This is God. This is who he is. And because of this, because he has created all things, because he is the king over all the earth, honor is due to him. This is what he deserves. But instead, his priests despise his name. Honor is due to God. This is why he says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? To you priests who despise my name. And because of this, then the Lord ends up saying to them that he has no pleasure in them. This is right in the middle of the section in verse 10. We talked last week a little bit about how the whole book of Malachi, I think, is structured as a chiasm. We did a very brief overview of that structure. Well, um, Malachi, if, if, you, if you're into looking at the structures of Scripture, Malachi is really, really fun because there are chiasms within chiasms. Um, it's all layered in lots of different ways. And we'll talk for in a minute about why I think that's important. But first, I want to show you the chiasm that I, that I think we have in this passage. So you have an outline of this in your, in your notes. So go ahead and take a look at that with me. What I'm going to do is walk through this, these sections in parallel sets. So I'm going to, I'm going to point out to you what, the, what section A says, and then I'm going to drop down to what A prime says. You, you should be able to see that in your notes as you follow along. So in verse 6, our first section here, section A, God makes clear that honor is due to him. And yet the priest despise his name. That parallels with chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 in A prime. Because of the priest's profane hearts, their due, what they deserve and what God is bringing to them is cursed blessings. God is turning their blessings, which are due to them when they're in fellowship with God, in covenant with him. He's turning those blessings into curses. That is their due. And again, that parallels what... Um, God says is his due in section A in verse 6. What is due to God is honor, and because of the priest's profanity, what is due to them is cursed blessings. Section B then, in verses 7 and 8, uh, is a description of the defiled sacrifices that the priests then bring to God. And then B prime, verses 12 through 14, repeats some of this. They profane God's name, and not only do they bring defiled sacrifices before God, but they knowingly and intentionally bring defiled sacrifices before him. Section C, then, 
uh, verses 9 and the first half of verse 10, God questions, would he be pleased with their sacrifices? Do, do they think that he would be pleased with them? He says that, uh, he asks, would anybody, is there anyone among you that would close the doors of the temple to prevent this profanity, to prevent this defiled worship? And then parallel with that in C prime, pure offerings will be given in every place. Incense will be offered up to the Lord in every place and pure offerings because his name will be great among the nations. So that contrasts with Israel who is not even stopped. There's no one in Israel that's stopping the defiled worship. That's, that's resisting these offerings that are being offered up. Instead, God is saying, I'm going to receive pure offerings among the Gentiles. Israel is not giving me pure worship. I'm going to receive pure worship from the Gentiles. And all of this points then to the center section here, section D, verse uh, 10, the second half of verse 10, where God says he has no pleasure in them. I have no pleasure in you, neither will I accept your offerings. Um, another thing to note structurally about this section, each of these sections in the chiasm is punctuated by the refrain, says the Lord of hosts. Um, this phrase shows up all throughout the whole book of Malachi, but there's a, sort, there's a concentration of it in this, um, in this chiasm, and each section punctuates, is punctuated by that phrase, says the Lord of hosts, says Yahweh, the king of everything. Okay, so... Uh, now that you're all asleep from going through this structure, wake back up. I want to tell you why this is important. Why are chiasms important? Chiasms, again, are a literary device common in Scripture. A passage will have parallel sections from the outside, and they work their way in to a center point. Chiasms are a device used to draw the reader's attention or the hearer's attention to that particular point. And this is much like any of a number of devices that are used in paintings to draw the viewer's eye to a particular feature. Um, if you study art, you'll, you'll be taught and you'll start to see yourself how there are lines in every painting that draw your eye to a particular feature. They draw your attention to something so that you, the, the artist intentionally wants you to see something. Not just the whole painting, but a particular part of it. This is what chiasms do in text. When we come across a chiasm, what are we to do with it? I think if we see it, if we see it, and we find it compelling, then we should meditate on it. We should simply stop and meditate on it. God's drawing your attention to something. Meditate on that. What is important about the thing that is being highlighted? We should not think... Again, comparing to, compared to a good painting, we should not think that what the chiasm is saying is that um, the highlighted thing is the only thing we're supposed to look at. Or even that it's the very most important thing in the passage. That, that's not necessarily the point of a chiasm. A chiasm. Again, chiasms are devices used to draw your attention to something. And when you're looking at a good painting you, you d and your attention is drawn to a particular point, a good artist doesn't leave you there. He draws your attention to one thing so that he can draw your attention to something else and then to something else. And then you step back and see the whole painting and you see it much more clearly. You see the depth of it. You see the artist, what the artist is trying to communicate to you. And same with chiasms. It's to draw our attention to a particular point. But it doesn't mean that that's the only thing that you should think about or the only thing that you should focus on. But it's simply highlighting it and catching your attention. If we believe that scripture is inspired, if we believe that God is the master craftsman, and, and again, we're talking about a God that loves patterns. God loves patterns everywhere. Just start thinking and looking at fractals, right? This God loves patterns in trees and broccoli and shells and sand and everything, snowflakes, this God that you serve loves crafting things. Well, he's done that with scripture as well. And he's done that so that we can study it, delight in it. Proverbs says that is the glory of kings to search out a matter. This is, what, this is the attitude I think we ought to have when we come to scripture and we're studying it. If we take, so with all that in mind then, I, want to, I do want to turn back to this passage 
What is the center point of this passage? What is the center here? Well, it's in verse 10. If, if we take the structure as I've laid it out, the center is in verse 10. And I should add one more thing. Um, I, I read a number of different commentaries and studied it. And even as I was looking at this structure, I think there are multiple ways to come at this structure. And, and I think that's okay. I think that's actually a design feature. God is a master craftsman. He wants you to look at it from this angle and then from this angle and then come over here and look at it from this angle. This is his word. He loves it and he's crafted it for you to study. And so if, if, if you go away from here and you Google, you know, chiasms in Malachi and you see somebody has a totally different chiasm than what I've presented, that's okay. That, that's not a problem. I don't see that as a contradiction. Rather, it's just another level, another angle at which to look at this. But given the structure, since I'm the one preaching, Given the structure that I've laid out, what's the center here? And I do think this is compelling. The center is the second half of verse 10. It's God's statement that he has no pleasure in the priests. Let me just read it for you again. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from your hands. This, the reasons that, this, uh, that God gives this as, as sort of a focus point for us, I think, comes as we study the rest of the surrounding verses, as we study the chiasm that points to this central point. And this particularly comes as a smarting blow to the people that God is speaking to when we remember the opening statement of Malachi. What's the opening statement of Malachi? I have loved you. Full stop. I have loved you. In the broad chiasm, in the broad structure of Malachi, section one, main point, I have loved you. Section two, main point, I have no pleasure in you. That should catch your attention. What is God saying? Well, let's look at it. We're going to start by looking at um, not the most outside sections, but we're going to focus on section B and B prime to start. These are the sections about the sacrifices that the priests were offering. So this is um, verses 7 and 8, and then verses 12 through 14. Animal sacrifices in God's sacrificial system were intended as a substitute for the offerer, a substitute for the one who was giving these sacrifices. A blemished animal, God, God demanded pure sacrifices. Pure, unblemished, healthy, um, the firstborn male from the flock. Lots of stipulations about what this animal should be like. Why does God demand a pure, unblemished, spotless lamb? Right? You're familiar with that phrase, the spotless lamb. Why does God demand that? Well, it's because the animal is supposed to be a substitute for the one who is, giving, who is bringing the offering, right? The animal is going to pay the penalty that I deserve in Old Testament Israel, that I deserve for my sin. What is, the, what is the penalty that I deserve for my sin ultimately? It's death, right? Because of our sin, we deserve death. So when I sin as an Israelite, I need to go and I need to make atonement for my sin. But God is gracious in that he doesn't require my life Rather, he requires the life of another. This was all to point ahead to the Messiah, right? The, the animal sacrifices were pointing ahead to the one, the true spotless lamb who would come and who would be the substitute for all of God's people. A blemished animal or a, a sick animal or a lame animal or a blind animal would not be a fitting sacrifice because it could not be a substitute. And it could not be a substitute because it looks too much like the sinner, Right? A blind animal is blinded. It has defects. It's not fitting. But, but God requires a spotless substitute, an unblemished substitute. And so when the priests are bringing these, un, these blemished substitutes, these um, lame, blind, sick animals, they're not bringing right represent, or a right substitute of themselves. They're bringing something that actually looks too much like them. It can't be a right substitute for them. So why would they do this? They're bringing these lame, sick, blind offerings. And, and in fact, actually, if we look at verse 14 also, 
I'm sorry, verse 13, uh, Malachi also mentions that they're bringing stolen sacrifices. They're, they're taking sacrifice, they're taking animals that don't belong to them and sacrificing them. There's no way that that animal can substitute for you because it doesn't belong to you. It didn't belong to you in the first place. Taking from somebody else and trying to make atonement that way. Why would they do this? Well, I think this shows, these kind, this kind of um, unrighteous worship demonstrates a, a wrong belief that Israel had regarding sacrifices and regarding what the purpose of worshiping God was. And this is because ultimately they didn't understand or didn't believe in God's grace. This is Israel's fundamental problem. This is these priests' fundamental problem. They don't understand. They don't believe in God's grace. What do I mean by that? Well, why would you bring an un, a blemished animal to God when he has required a, a, a Sorry, when he has required an unblemished animal, why would you bring a blemished animal to God? It's because you don't think that you're coming to worship God because he's a gracious God, but fundamentally you're coming to worship God to bribe him. You're coming to God to bribe him or appease him. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just make a sacrifice so that then God will leave me alone. I'm just bribing him to get his favor. And like any good deal maker, then you cheapen the bribe, right? You, you just, it, fundamentally, the Israelites were thinking, I need to go and appease God. I need to bribe him. How, how little can I give and still get away with it? How little can I give and still receive God's favor? This is a pagan view of God. This is not an evangelical view of God. This is not a grace-filled view of God. This is a pagan view of God. That we need to go and appease God by our sacrifices. That we need to go and bribe him to, to get him to stop. That this, is, this is why you have all kinds of crazy sacrifices in the pagan world. You want it to rain this season and have good crops? Then I demand child sacrifice, says Molech. You want to appease me and, and receive my blessings? Then I demand that you come and appease me and bribe me. This is a pagan view of God. We have an example of this in the New Testament in Acts chapter 5. Ananias and Sapphira. The, the new church has begun after Pentecost. The spirit has fallen. There's this explosion of conversions. Um, people are bringing... All, uh, um, all kinds of offerings to the church to support the work of the church, to share with those that have needs. And there's this story of Ananias and Sapphira who sell a piece of land and they commit to bringing all of it to the Lord, to the church, but secretly they hold some of it back. And so they act as though they're bringing everything. You know, so if they sold the piece of property not comparing it to property these days, but if they sold the piece of property for $100,000, then they would say, well, we sold the property for $50,000 and we're going to give all of it to the church, having held back half of it or some portion of it. And they come and they present this to Peter and both of them are struck dead. And Peter says that it's not because you have lied to man, but because you have lied to the spirit. You've lied to God. What was the lie? The lie fundamentally, I don't think it would have been a problem for Ananias and Sapphira to have sold their property and brought a portion of it to the church. The problem was that they sold it and acted like they were bringing everything to the church, having kept some of it to themselves. They pretended that they put on these airs of worship, these airs of, of sacrificial giving, while instead actually secretly keeping some back. And for worshipers then, for those that worship Yahweh, this view of God simply is a denial and a rejection of his grace. It's a denial of his grace, that, that he wants to receive free gifts from you because he loves you, because he has saved you, because he's poured out everything for you. That's, that's the attitude that we are to have when we, when we give to God. When we give to God in our tithes and offerings, when we give to God in our prayers. Your, your prayers, scripture teaches us that our prayers are like incense 
in the sacrificial system. They're like the, the soothing aroma that comes up before God. That's what your prayers are like. Do you bring your prayers to God as a free will offering because of the grace that he has given to you? Or do you go to him to bribe him? Do you go to him to appease him? That, that's, a, that's an irreverent view of God because God has said, I have loved you. If you're his, he says, I have loved you. He's poured out his grace upon you. I think all of this together indicates that defiled or irreverent worship fundamentally is a fruit of despising the grace of God. Irreverent worship, worship that is um, for show, worship that is, um, that is just on the outside, worship that holds back from God pretending to give everything, fundamentally is a wrong belief about the grace of God. It's despising his grace. It's despising who he says he is and making much of yourself at the same time. Worshiping yourself instead of worshiping God. In this section, God addresses the priests, um, the clergy in that day those who were responsible to teach the people the law and to lead them in right worship. Malachi is a, um, a hard indictment upon all pastors and elders who lead their people in irreverent worship, who lead their people in this false view of God's grace, this denial of God's grace, this despising of God's name. Instead of teaching the people and leading them in right, faithful worship, the priests were bringing and allowing corrupt sacrifices to be brought. And what's really ironic about this is that at the same time that they were bringing these defiled sacrifices, allowing these defiled sacrifices to be brought, the the priests were themselves complaining about it. Look at verse, um, first we'll look at verse um, End of verse 6 and start of verse 7 here. End of verse 6. God says, you priests who despise my name. And they answer, in what way have we despised your name? God says, you offer defiled food on my altar. But you say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying, the table of the Lord is contemptible. The table of the Lord, the altar of the Lord, the place where the sacrifices are brought. Okay, so far, I think we understand this. They're bringing these defiled sacrifices. Verse 8 mentions what they are like. These defiled sacrifices that they wouldn't even bring to their governor. Right? They wouldn't even offer to a civil authority because they're so clearly um, uh, blemished sacrifices. It it would not bring honor to their governor to, to bring these to them. God questions, would he accept you favorably? Okay, but now jump down to verse 13, or verse 12. There's the parallel passage here. You profane my name, verse 12, in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled, and its fruit, its food, is contemptible. That's a little different. You also say, oh, what a weariness, and you sneer at it. Other translations, I've got the New King James in front of me. Other translations say that you sniff at it or you snuff at it. All these related words. They, They turn up their noses at the sacrifices on God's table. They're complaining about this. And and the irony, I think, of this is this is sort of an implication of when we remember what's going on in the sacrificial system. What happens with the sacrifices that are brought before God? Some of them are burnt up completely before him. But most of the sacrifices, part of it is burnt up before the Lord. And part of it is given to the priests. The priests eat part of the sacrifices. So they're bringing these corrupt sacrifices to the temple, to the altar. They're letting all the people bring these corrupt sacrifices. And, and, and they, then they turn and they look at the sacrifices and they go, ugh. 
And then, they, and then they despise God's name and act as though he's not providing for them. The table of the Lord is contemptible. It's despised. It's despicable. It's gross. Well, why is it that way, priests? Because you have led the people this way. Because you've brought these sacrifices before God. The poor fruit of the table that, um, uh, the poor fruit of the table that they're complaining about is the result of their own disobedience. Again, this is a, a strong indictment against the, the leaders of the church. The leaders of the church, we are guilty of not teaching our people to worship God in spirit and truth. We are guilty of not teaching our people that the Bible is the infallible word of God. The church at large is guilty of leading the people in irreverent worship. And then we complain when we don't see the nations turning to the Lord. It's the fruit of our own disobedience. But of course, there is plenty of application here for all of us who are part of the priesthood. Um, in 1 Peter 2, in Revelation 1, very clearly, the people of God are identified, all of us, as priests. You are all part of the priesthood. And so this exhortation that Malachi brings, while I think the first application is to pastors and elders, those who lead the church, it is, of course, applicable to all of us. Are we tempted to complain and to despise the things that God is doing and, and do we realize that often the things that we are complaining about God has brought because of our own disobedience? A great example of this, I think, is uh, for parents. Parents, do you complain about the state of things in your home? Are you tempted to complain about the way that your children don't listen to you? Or the, the way that they're fighting amongst one another? Well, I, the first application of this is, well... The fruit of your marriage is it's just an evidence in your home, right? The fruit of the womb is right there in front of you. It's your fruit. What have you born? And are you in disobedience to God and then complaining about the fruit of that disobedience? Our obedience to God is paramount. Our worship of God is paramount and doing things the way that God has called us to do is paramount. And we're tempted to complain when things don't go well, when there's strife in our homes, when there's strife in my marriage, when there's strife in these relationships that I have. We complain about it to God. We might even honestly pray to God, God, deliver me from this. Help me in this. But are we willing to also look and see, am, am I in disobedience to God first? And is that disobedience, am I, am I viewing the fruit of my own disobedience before God? When God brings hardship to your life, as he often does, the first thing, the first thing that should cross your mind is, Lord, are you, are you trying to get my attention? Are you trying to direct my eyes to see my own disobedience? And sometimes we know, study the book of Job, we know that God brings hard providences and it's not because of our disobedience. But there are many times that he does bring hard providences because of our disobedience. Right? The scripture tells us that because, of our, uh, because we, um, we, we are not in fellowship with one another, because we sin against one another, because we don't confess our sins to God, that people are sick. That, that's one of the reasons that people get sick is because of God's judgment. Because of God's discipline upon them. I want you to hear this clearly. I'm not saying that every time you get sick, that is God's discipline upon you. But it might be. And we need to faithfully turn to God's word. It might be because he is growing us up in perseverance. It might be because he is training us up to be more and more his people, his sons. But it might be because he needs to get your attention. Like a good spanking. Get your attention, turn you to what he has for you to do. And all of this, of course, is inside of the grace of God. He says, I have loved you. I have loved you. And when you disobey me, I'm not going to let things go well for you because I love you. 
And because I want to turn you back to me, because you actually have your greatest satisfaction when you are obeying me. Well, how could God say that? Well, because he made you. He, he crafted you. He knows what's going to give you your greatest satisfaction. He knows it because he made you. He made you that way. Stepping out from, uh, or going, I guess, going on in this section, or in these, this structure here, God makes very clear that his name is going to be great among the nations. And this is, again, a further indictment upon the church, upon the leaders of Israel in Malachi's day. Verses 11 and 14, just in these two verses, God three times says that my name is to be exalted among the nations. Israel's temple was supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. Um, this is a phrase that comes from Isaiah 56. Jesus quotes it when he goes into the temple and, and purges the temple from all the money changers. Jesus says, my temple, my house, is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. Actually, not just Israel. The temple was for all the nations. A place where all the nations could come and worship Yahweh. But instead of treating God's house like this, the priests were defiling his house and profaning his name. They're profaning his name while pretending to be his people. Acting like his people. They're, they're, like, um, they're like sons who want to claim the benefits of being sons and yet refuse to obey their fathers. And they don't understand why God takes the keys away. Because you're not, you're, I can't trust you with the keys because you're not obeying me in the home. I'm not going to let you go and disobey on the road. You're going to hurt somebody. Right? And, and sons that are, um, sons get, we, children get indignant about this kind of thing. So we think we deserve to have everything from our parents, forgetting that it's a covenant relationship. You, you are called to obey your parents, children. You're called to obey your parents. And when you don't obey your parents, it shouldn't surprise you if things don't go well. When you obey your parents, there should be great grace and blessing in the home. And so the priests are defiling God's house, profaning his name. And then because of this, God says, it's, essentially, it's not going to go well with you and my blessings are going to be taken away from you. Paul condemns the Jews in Romans chapter 2 because of this sort of feigned observance of the law. You who observe the law, do you keep the law? You who observe the law or teach the law, do you, do you yourselves go and break the law? So Paul says in Romans chapter 2, God questions whether any of the priests would protect the temple from false worship. Is there anybody here who would close the doors of the temple? God says in verse 10. Anybody here who would close the doors of the temple to keep the vain sacrifices from being altered, the empty sacrifices from being offered on the altar? The rhetorical response is no, there's no one. And so God says then he's going to look for a pure offering from among the Gentiles, verse 11. Israel will not bring to me pure offerings, and so I'm going to look for it. It's going to happen by my providence and my plan. It's going to happen among the nations. Incidentally, I think this, or not incidentally, I think this is pointing ahead, uh, an indication of the judgment that would come on Jerusalem finally in 70 A.D., God says, who is there that would close the doors of the temple to keep you from worshiping me in this false, feigned, pretended way? Presumably there is no one. And so God says, I'll do it. And he closes the temple down. Shuts the temple down in 70 AD. And in doing so, the gospel goes out to all the nations. Incense is offered up in every place. And pure offerings are offered up to honor the name of the Lord among the nations. This, of course, this uh, statement from Malachi to the Jews would have been a great offense to them that God is not receiving their sacrifices, but he's going to receive it from the nations. Uh, that's kind of like Cain and Abel, right? 
God accepts Abel's sacrifice but rejects Cain's because of Cain's heart. God is accepting, it says he's going to accept pure offerings from the Gentiles, those despised people. He's not going to accept it from Israel because of their heart. It's a great offense to them as it was also in the days of the apostles. When the gospel goes out, the um, faithful Jews rejoiced in the gospel going out to the nations. Unfaithful Jews hissed at it. They spat at it. The, whole, the, the very idea that all of you Gentiles would be called the children of God was repugnant to them. False worship is in many ways the theme of this section. False worship is God's answer to the priest's question in verse 6, going out to the, the out, outer sections of the chiasm now. God says, you have despised my name. And they ask, in what way have we despised your name? In summary, God's answer is, You've despised my name by your false worship. God's name is to be honored among his people. In fact, he gives us a commandment about it. It's one of the Ten Commandments. The third commandment is, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Um, That's how most of our translations put it. Another way to translate it would be, you shall not bear the name of the Lord your God in vain. God's name is upon his people. His mark is upon his people. In the new covenant, it's by baptism. If you've been baptized, you bear God's mark upon you. And so the third commandment is not primarily about using God, the name God, flippantly. That's not primarily what the third commandment is about, although that's certainly included. The third commandment is about you bearing God's name. As a Christian... As a baptized believer, you do bear God's name. It's not a question of whether or not you bear God's name. You do bear his name. What the question is, is do you bear it in faith, faithfully, or do you bear it in vain? Do you bear it in an empty way? Do you bear it in a way that gives him honor, or do you bear it in a way that despises him? You're marked as a Christian. You're identified as a Christian. In everything that you do and everywhere that you go, you are a Christian. Do you bear that mark in a way that honors God? Or do you bear that mark in a way that somebody who knows that you're a Christian would scoff at the name of God because of you? That's what a Christian is like? This This is what this passage is about. Bearing God's name in faith, honoring God, or despising him. Hypocrisy, irreverent worship, holding back from God. Pretending to give everything over to God, but saying, I want to keep this part just for me. I want to worship God, I want to be a Christian, I want to have good fellowship with Christians, I'm going to show up at church. I'm going to speak Christianese. Jesus can be king over all of that, but just not right here. This little area of my life, this, this is for me. In doing so, we bear God's name in vain. Because if God's mark is on you, then he has claimed you. He's claimed all of you. When we... When we allow this kind of hypocrisy, this kind of irreverent worship, it's no wonder that the church has no authority in our culture today. The Christian church cannot speak authoritatively to the culture. The Christian church cannot proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in power today. Broadly speaking, the reason for that is because We're like the priests. We we hold back from God. We we say, I'm going to worship God in all these areas, but this one sin that I want to hang on to, maybe it's some hidden sexual sin. 
Maybe it's not that. Maybe it's some, some root of bitterness towards a family member. I'm, I'm not going to let that one go. Maybe it's not that. Maybe it's some other lie that you've held on to. And you're not going to offer it up to the Lord and, and, and make things right. This is no better than the priest's. They come into the temple and they offer these sacrifices pretending to worship God in the way that he has commanded, holding back, trying to just appease God. Maybe he won't notice what else is going on. I think this is particularly important for this church to hear because we have a high view of worship. We, we have a high view of coming to the Lord in reverent worship. And God hates it when we come to him in pretend reverence and keep our sin hidden. God hates it when our disobedience, when we think that we can come into his presence and that we can hide this little area of our lives in the dark and that his light isn't going to shine on it. God hates hypocrisy. And we have been blessed by the, the elders and the leadership of this church for decades now with a high view of worship, with a high view of honoring God's name as we come before him. And so we must be reminded to not come before him in this hypocritical way. We must give our whole selves to God because we bear his name. You do bear his name. You can't escape that. We think, we're tempted to think at times that we can appease God by showing up at church, going to Trinity Group, having people over, and that that appeases God, and so he's not going to notice the other areas that we're refusing to give over to him. We think he'll just leave us alone then for the rest of the week, and, and I can carry on. But God is concerned that we give glory to his name. And again, his concern for that is because his name, uh, honor is due to his name. But he's also concerned for that because, again, he loves you. He made you. He knows that what you're hiding from him is destroying things. He knows that what you're hiding from him, that you, that you think you're hiding from him, is tearing apart your heart. He knows. He, he already knows. And so he demands that you come and turn it over to him so that he can pour out his blessings upon you. God is such a demanding God, right? He's such a perfectionist. No, he's not. He demands you to come to him so he can shower blessings upon you. Later on in Malachi, God says that just, just test me in this. Obey me and then just wait and see if I don't split the heavens and pour out blessings upon you so that you can't handle it. That's the kind of God that you serve. Your sin is awful, and your hidden sin is worse, but God is gracious, and so he says, come to me, come to me, I have loved you, and so when you, if, if you feel, at times you may feel this, you may feel the center of this chiasm, right, you might feel this central point, you may feel that God says, I have no pleasure in you, you, you may sense, you might sense that at times, that you need to hear that. But you need to hear that in the context of his gracious, unconditional, everlasting love. It's, this is not a contradiction here in Malachi. It's precisely the point. I have loved you. And, and in your sin, in your refusal to follow me, I have no pleasure in you. So come to me. Come back. When we try to bribe God, we try to bring him worship or sacrifices for show outwardly. He finds no pleasure in us. Your, your prayers, your offered up incense is not a soothing aroma to him. And we do that because we don't want to draw near to him. Because we know what we're like. We know our hearts I don't want to come to the light. It's gross. I, I see myself when I come to the light. I don't want to see that. 
And so we keep God at a distance. But rather, Paul says in Romans 12, verse 1, present your bodies, and I think there Paul means your whole person, your whole selves, as living sacrifices. Present your whole self, all of you, your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Pour it all out. Leave it all on the altar. Give your whole self to God. And when we do so, when we come to him by faith, we come to him in Christ. What does God say? Well, when Jesus was first marked as God's son publicly in his baptism, remember? Jesus goes to John and John baptizes him and the Holy Spirit descends from heaven upon Christ. Christ is identified publicly as the son of God. And what does God say? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So come to him, not to manipulate God, but because you actually believe that you are in Christ. Because you believe that God sent his son to die for your sins, to pay for them, to take them away. Every single one of them. There's not a single one that is too great for Jesus to take. There's not a single one that is too long in your past. There's not a single one that is too small, too insignificant. He takes them all. They all die in the grave with him. So come to him because you believe this, because you actually believe the opening lines of Malachi. I have loved you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, your word is rich. It's layered. It's full of structures and patterns, but foundationally it's full of truth. Teach us to see the truth of the gospel in every part of scripture. Teach us to see the truth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And to see also the, the state of our own hearts. Your word is a powerful sword and it divides us and it opens us up. I pray that you would open us up. That you would teach us to confess our sins. That we would not flee the light that we would come into the light and flee the darkness and, and turn our whole selves over to you, place our whole selves upon the altar. We ask this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.